welcome back to Last Week in Medicine. It's December 10th, 2020, and this is our third episode of season two. Today, I am joined by Dr. Austin Rupp, hey, Dr. as well as his uh, dog kennel, and uh, two other special guests, first-time guests of the pod, Dr. Claire Sierkowski, and returning guest, Dr. Stacy Johnson. Welcome, you guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so Claire did her undergraduate training at the University of Maryland, as well as her medical school, and she came to Utah for her residency training. And uh, when did you finish residency, Claire? 2012. And then I was going to leave. Um, sorry, I finished residency training in 2015. And then our plan was to head back to the East Coast. And then I managed to get absorbed by all of Utah's beauty, and I'm still here. Not the first person to be seduced by Utah. So she is, uh, so you're on faculty as one of our hospitalists. She's a medical director for the acute medicine units, and her research interests are in quality improvement. Uh, what else should our listeners know about you, Claire? Um, I also am the director for our communication training program, um, UAC, and so I try to I try to teach excellent communication skills, which may totally fail me in this podcast. So I apologize once I like totally stumble and you're like, WTF. <laughs> also a, uh, a world traveler and a photographer and a dog mom. All of those things. Yeah, people have been very worried about um my and my husband's sanity since the pandemic because we haven't been able to leave the country in a while. Um, so people have been routinely checking in and being like, how are you doing? It's been kind of funny, but we've been able to uh, travel the state, which has been fun. Yeah, lots to see in the state of Utah. So, uh, and then uh, Stacy. <laughs> I have a fun fact about Claire. Um, uh -oh. I don't think I've ever shared this, but Claire was the most uh, commanding presence in an RRT in residency that I have ever seen one time. We <laughs> went into a room when a rapid was being called, and um, I'm not going to say yelled, but Claire forcefully stated who she was and that she was running this rapid, and there were no questions about that whatsoever, and everyone was very comforted. Good work, Claire believe that. <laughs> it's the excellent communication skills. Yeah. All right. Well, Stacy is a returning guest. Uh, he did his medical school in Chicago, came to Utah for residency training. Uh, he's currently the director of the thrombosis service, and he's our in-house clinical science guy. So he's the guy that you go to if you want to pull and analyze a bunch of data on patients. Uh, anything else our listeners should know about you, Stacy? Hmm. Two great little kids at home. Um, I'm waiting anxiously for the ski season to kick off. We're a little uh, in a bit of a drought right now. Um, other than that, no. I've just been here a long time and enjoy the group. I can consider yourself a thrombologist also, Stacy. <laughs> I, I am a soon-to-be-retired thrombosis expert. As, as you may know, Dr. Jenkins will be taking over that role soon. So... Um, Yes, it's, I, I'm not a thrombologist, no. Auto mechanic, bike mechanic, all-around ripper. Those are my fun facts for Stacy. Oh, I like that, ripper. Okay. Okay, well, I have a very uh, you know, important question to start us off. Did you guys all see the last episode of The Mandalorian? <laughs> I did not. Okay, no. well, spoiler alert. Boba Fett, the bounty hunter who brought... Han Solo to Jabba the Hutt and suffered a really anticlimactic demise in the great pit of Carcoon is not actually dead. And he's helping the Mandalorian. How cool is that? You should definitely check it out. But how is Grogu? <laughs> Dude, Grogu. He, he, has, he has a moment in that episode. You should watch it, Austin. All right, but let's talk about serious things. Taylor Swift is releasing a second album for the year tonight. My daughter will be happy. Yeah? Yeah. Does she like Taylor Swift? She does. She's more of a Miley Cyrus fan. Though. Ooh, you got you to gotta cut that off. <laughs> I saw Taylor Swift in concert before she actually became, like, famous famous. It was very exciting. Likewise, when she was still a country 
artist. I saw her. Dude. Yes. Yeah. Playing the guitar. Look at you too. I'm just glad she has her rights or whatever now. Isn't that all wrapped up? Like she like owns her own music now and can finally get out from under the oppression of the music industry. Anyway. I can't really comment on that, but Yes, I, poor well, poor thing. Look forward to the new <laughs> album. The last one was pretty good, I thought. So Okay, well, the other big news today, FDA is having hearings on whether to approve the Pfizer vaccine uh, for emergency use. When do you guys think we're going to get that here at the U of U? The rumor is five to seven days from now. So yeah, I, I heard the 17th, the first round. Yeah. Excellent. Oh. Life-changing. Yeah, great. That will be a nice Christmas present. Okay, well, let's get down to business now. Uh, the first paper we want to talk about today, uh, Stacy and Claire are the first and second authors on. It's titled Comparison of Resident Advanced Practice Clinician and Hospitalist Teams in an Academic Medical Center Association with Clinical Outcomes and Resource Utilization, published in the Journal of Hospital Medicine. Congrats, by the way, on getting published in JHM. Very nice. Thank you. Do a shout out to the other folks in our group who are listed as authors, Katie LaPay, David Kendrick, Adrian Smith, and Santosh Reddy. Nice job, everybody. So Stacy, maybe you could start us off. What were you guys looking for in this paper and what did you find? Yeah, um, so in this paper, you know, this started with an idea from Dr. Reddy, who, as you guys know, helped develop our APC service here at our hospital. And, you know, he had pre previous experience doing this down in Texas before he came here. And his initial thought was, are APCs as good as clinicians, you know, as far as residents, attendings, or are they potentially even better? And how do they, they compare when we do a head-to-head -head comparison? And so, you know, we looked at the literature. There's several studies that have already been published kind of looking into this. But they've all been kind of binary comparisons, whether a hospitalist to an APC program or APC program to residents. But there's not been a, a um, three-group head-to-head comparison all within the same institution. So we thought we had a good model to study this. Um, and so we looked at about three years' worth of our admissions from July 2015 to 2018, totaling about 12,000 admissions. And we looked at uh, outcomes defining clinical care as well as kind of efficiency and, and uh, cost-effective care. And so we looked at length of stay, readmission rates, mortality. Uh, we also looked at cost. And then as far as efficiency, also discharge times and then consult utilization. Um, and so within these three groups, um, and the, the house staff represented about 8,000 of these admissions. APC said about 3,500, and hospitals said about 1,200 of these admissions. The, the groups were pretty well balanced all in all. You know, we did collect baseline factors, patients' age, gender, comorbidities. We also looked at the time of admission, because based on our admitting structure during the study period, most of the admissions coming in overnight were redistributed to our solo hospitalist team and our APC team. And the residents did the majority of the admissions during the day. We also looked at um, where they transferred, was the patient transferred from an outside facility for kind of a higher level of care? Did they need subspecialty care that couldn't be provided at the outside hospital? You know, and so were they more medically complex? Uh, we, and so we adjusted for those in, in some of our analyses. We looked at case mix index, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, Long story short, the, the care provided by each team was, was pretty darn similar. Um, you know, we did both adjusted and unadjusted analyses. And, you know, the, the gist of this was the costs were similar across all groups. Length of stay was similar. Readmission rates were similar. Mortality was the same. The, the couple things that were different was the console utilization was a little bit higher for the APC teams. You know, somewhere around 15% higher, I believe. And then I think as well as the resident teams had a little higher uh, console utilization. And the solo hospitalist teams were actually able to discharge patients a little bit sooner out of the hospital. 
And so, you know, some of this is not real surprising if you think of the logistics of how an academic medical center works, right? You have resident teams that pre-round, they gather all the information, they meet on formal bedside rounds, you discuss the patient, and then the attending essentially gives the blessing to discharge the patient that day. You know, and so we thought that that was potentially some of the rationale explaining the delay in discharge times for the resident teams. We did see a similar trend with our APC teams, and that's likely because our APC teams are structured similar to a resident team where the attending and the APC will discuss any major issues on the date of discharge before the patient is actually discharged. Um, so those are kind of our main findings. You know, I, I think it's important information to share with other institutions that are struggling to figure out how to expand their staffing models, you know, given that residency programs aren't usually expanding rapidly. Uh, it's also helpful potentially in COVID situations where we have to have these rapid surges in manpower, you know, to accommodate for these fluxes of patients. Um, and, you know, it demonstrates that this is a, a cost-effective model, right? That, that APCs didn't drive up costs of care. They didn't order a lot more labs. They didn't have longer length of stay. They didn't have worse outcomes. Uh, you know, so this was, this was a, a nice piece of information kind of supporting the use of APCs in the inpatient setting. Um, so, you know, a couple other key points would be how do we utilize our APCs and what does our APC group look like? You know, so we had a pretty experienced APC group. Um, you know, we had about 10 APCs during the study period. Um, they had a lot of clinical experience on average, about four years of previous clinical experience with most of it being in inpatient medicine or oncology or cardiology. So these weren't new graduates. So, you know, something to keep in mind. We did have a few new graduates, but they underwent pretty intensive training before they got, you know, onboarded. Um, and that evolved into a new APC fellowship program that we've had now for the past few years. Um, but of note, that fellowship program began after this study was, was completed. Very cool. Yeah, I guess there have been quite a few changes since this study was done at our institution. Like you mentioned, all of the admissions during the day were performed by the resident teams. And, right. and since that time, we've now started having APC teams admit and solo hospitalists admit during the day just because there's so many patients coming in during the day. And so it makes you wonder if, if that would you know, change any of the outcomes for the hospitalist teams if that would lead to, you know, maybe less efficiency if, if now they're admitting during the day. But yeah, overall, though, these are like pretty reassuring numbers that the, the care is, is pretty good across the board, no matter what team the patient lands on. Right, right. Yeah, we did some other kind of sensitivity analyses looking at patient census and, and those kind of things. Uh, that we didn't include in this manuscript, and it did not seem to impact the outcomes depending on the census. I think one of the highlights here is that uh, at our institution, we are very comfortable with APCs. You know, over the last, at least since, since Jenkins and I have been here, you know, APC practice and working with APCs is a part of life and something that we are very comfortable with and that, um, you know, may not be the same at other institutions. And Stacy, you highlighted that, but I think, um, you know, maybe the sense at other places and nationally is some hesitancy with APCs and folks, you know, that, that we interview for jobs here um, are always curious about that, you know, sort of how good are the APCs, you know, and, and sort of, um, again, a little bit of hesitancy, but I think, yeah, this, this really helps dispel that. And we sort of, I think, take that for granted, but I think, you know, this is some objective evidence that, uh, that that's the case, that they're, you know, more than competent. And I think, you know, I'm also a little bit struck by sort of the comparison in the paper to residents, um, you know, APCs comparing to residents and, and there was some language in there, you know, about, um, I can't remember exactly what, what you all said, but, um, you know, that it, it sort of is like the APCs can help reduce clerical work and, and stuff like that. And I think, you know, to me, they're, they're, you know, even oftentimes, you know, um, have more experience than house staff and, you know, are practicing at the top of their license, you know, essentially 
almost, I mean, independently, more or less. And so, um, again, we've gotten comfortable with that, but I don't know that other places are. So this is, again, um, a good piece of, of you know, data. Uh, you know, it was interesting. This whole project was conceived and completed before the COVID pandemic kicked off. And the reviewers and the editors of JHM thought, oh, how would this look in the setting of COVID? And so we did put some language in here and thought, oh, this might be a, a reasonable, you know, model to expand during COVID. And this came to life just this past several days where, you know, our hospitals group was short-staffed and you know, I was charged to cover two different teams and basically had an APC on one of those teams and was nearly practicing independent. So, you know, it worked well. So this, this is real life stuff going on right now. Definitely. The only other comment I had was, do you think 20 or 30 minutes or whatever for a discharge order and getting the patient out of the hospital is, is cleaning clinically meaningful? Uh, personally, not that clinically meaningful unless your hospital's on the verge of divert. Um, but I think the hospital administrators like to see that earlier discharge time, faster turnaround on the rooms, fill the bed quicker. Uh, you know, it might speed people through the ER a little bit. Um, so marginally clinically meaningful. I think if you multiply that by many patients, it could be meaningful. But, and and you, you know, you laugh about us being on divert, but it feels like, you know, we're practically on divert all the time. So this yeah. hospital is, is pretty full most of the time. So 30 minutes can't, you know, maybe not a huge deal, but when, when you're, uh, when you're, when your patients are boarding down in the emergency room, it makes a difference, I guess. Claire, sure. Claire, did you have something? Oh, the only other thing I was going to add was just like, I just want to give kudos to our APC fellowship program. I mean, one of the reasons we all went into academic medicine was to really focus on teaching and you know, as our hospitals group has really been increasing in size, we don't spend as much time with the residents, but our APC fellows are just amazing. And it really does give us the same teaching opportunity, you know, with them during their fellowship to really kind of show them, you know, evidence-based medicine and these different ways and really kind of guide their, their medical practice, which I just think is amazing. Um, I'll second that. I mean, you know, I've been with the group before the APC group here existed, and I've just seen it grow, and it just gets better every year. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was initially nervous at what level of care an APC could provide, and now I'm a 100% believer in our group. Uh, you know, I agree with Austin's comments that our experienced senior APCs are as good, if not better, than most of our third-year residents. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll you know, that. If not young attendings, I mean, our APC group is fantastic. Yeah. Santosh is going to be like super excited when he listens to this podcast. Santosh <laughs> does not listen to this podcast. <laughs> the only other thing I wonder about is sort of, you know, like next steps might be sort of how innovative can we get with rounding structure and, and APC use and sort of even, you know, getting more creative with with how staff rounding, um, which isn't the focus of this paper, but does sort of bring up the question of discharge time and moving people and um, is pre-rounding, you know, with them on the computer and us on the computer and then that, and then how staff regurgitating that data to us, is that really a good use of, of time and resources? Um, which again, is not the point of this paper, but food for thought. Yeah, we did, a, we did a parallel project that Claire was a part of as well, looking at HCAPs and patient satisfaction. Um, and that, that one, you, know, you guys can look that up in Journal of General Internal Medicine. And it was interesting that the patients felt more comfortable. They felt like the, the solo hospitalists provided a little bit better care. And, you know, so hospitals were perceived as more, um, you know, uh, accepted by the patients um, versus it seemed like we knew what was going on more so than a resident, et cetera. So, you know, th there are some pros and cons to having learners in the mix uh, from a patient perspective. Yeah, I anecdotally can say my age caps went way up when I started spending more time on solo teams, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's uh, move on to our other paper. So second paper is from Open Form Infectious Diseases with Dr. Claire Sierkowski as the first author. And the title is A Pathway for Community Acquired Pneumonia with Rapid Conversion to Oral Therapy Improves Healthcare Value. 
Several of our colleagues were also on this paper. Shout out to Tristan Timbrook, our antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist extraordinaire, Carly Edholm, who used to be in our group but abandoned us for Montana, Nate Hatton in the ICU, who was on CNN recently, and Chrissy Hopkins in the emergency department, and Emily Spivak from infectious disease. So quite a crew. Clara, can you tell us about this paper and maybe start out by telling us what the equation for value is? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Fabulous. Um, thanks for that lovely introduction, Dr. Jenkins. Um, so yeah, this, this paper came about in 2015 as an initial project because we were recognizing that community-acquired pneumonia was being treated in many different fashions throughout the hospital. Um, and we were using IV antibiotics for most of the length of stay. And uh, we recognized that that was probably driving up length of stay regarding these patients. And it really wasn't necessarily better for the patients. And so we wanted to, we really wanted to streamline and make sure everyone was on the same page. So we had this group come together, like you said, it's pretty diverse. Um, we had um, ICU um, with Dr. Hatton. We had the emergency room with Dr. Hopkins, um, infectious disease um, with Dr. Spivak. And we had pharmacy. We also had IT support and value engineering. And so uh, the University of Utah, I'm sure as you're aware, is one of you know these strong houses for value. So um, you know, value equals quality plus service divided by cost. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> what does that mean? What does this mean? <laughs> we, need, we need Bob Pendleton back. <laughs> I know, I miss that man so much. So anyway, um, <laughs> moving on to my actual paper. Um, so we ended up creating this pathway which started as an order set and it identified patients in the emergency room. So if a patient had a chest X-ray and an antibiotic ordered, this really annoying, you know, best practice alert would pop up and be like, does your patient have pneumonia? And if they did, you could press it. And with that, we had an automatic transition of what antibiotics a patient should get. So one dose of IV ceftriaxone, one dose of IV azithromycin, and then automatic discontinuation of IV antibiotics with initiation of PO securoxime. And we actually stopped um, azithromycin altogether because before this most recent IDSA guidelines came out, the most recent um, data was from 2015, um, the Dutch guidelines, which was really saying that um, atypical antimicrobial coverage was not required for inpatient floor patients, that there really wasn't any significant difference in care. And so really in this goal to, you know, streamline and reduce um, antimicrobial overuse, we wanted to just stick with um, um, a beta-lactam. So the first, we ended up doing this process or this project in three um, phases is what it ended up being in. So the phase one is kind of the rollout with education. So this is while we were getting this BPA kind of up and running in the background, we were going around to all these different units, the emergency room, the internal medicine residents, the ICU, and making sure that they were all kind of aware that this was going to happen, kind of doing this initial education, but there wasn't necessarily this pathway in. Um, it wasn't live. So in phase two, um, which was the following six months, we had this thing rolled out. So everyone was educated. We had the BPA um, live. And then in addition to that, we actually had our antimicrobial stewardship team going around and providing feedback to all our providers to make sure that they felt comfortable and kind of knew what was going on. Because we initially had a fair amount of concern about an early transition from IV to PO, as well as the discontinuation of azithromycin. So there was a lot of kind of reassurance and re-education in that phase. After about six months, um, 
our stewardship team kind of needed to be diverted to other projects. And so they weren't doing this kind of active audit and feedback anymore. And so that really left us with this pathway alone. So that's kind of where these three phases came from. And when we looked at what we were able to accomplish, um, our length of IV antibiotic therapy really was substantially reduced or significantly reduced in phase two and phase three. So with the pathway and with stewardship, the total length of antibiotic therapy, which is, um, which is their inpatient therapy. And then I actually had to go through all of these discharge prescriptions and figure out how many days the patients were being discharged on and, and um, calculating that. It was a lovely, really amazing manual process. Um, so that was actually significantly uh, decreased in phase two. So our baseline total length of antibiotic therapy was actually six and a half days, and we got that down to five and a half days, so a full day, which doesn't seem like a lot, but I think it actually is pretty meaningful um, when you look at the bigger picture. And then our length of um, azithromycin therapy was also significantly reduced in phase two and phase three. Um, and those were really the main ones. We did have um, substantial cost savings in phase two. And a lot of this was related to uh, pharmacy cost. We did have kind of a slight reduction in uh, facility utilization, so kind of earlier discharges, like I talked about earlier, if you get patients off IVs to oral antibiotics a little bit sooner, um, you, could, you feel more comfortable letting the patient go home. Um, overall, you know, one of the big takeaways from this, it's been five years since we kind of concocted this idea. But one of the biggest things that I've noticed with this project is that I feel like this really actually sparked a cultural change within the group because we feel more comfortable with oral antibiotics now and with shorter durations and with really kind of narrowing antibiotics and feeling more confident about that. So, you know, overall, I think this has been a really amazing process, albeit frustrating. Uh, <laughs> lots of lots of lessons learned in this project. Um, but it still brings me joy kind of every time I'm on service and I'm like, the pathway is being used. And then of course I need to like get feedback and be like, we don't need to use azithromycin. Um, so there's a lot of re-education going on, but overall this has been a really kind of positive experience, I think for for everyone. Yeah, I remember when when we first rolled this out and I was like extremely perplexed that all of a sudden we were only doing one dose of azithro and then it was going away. And 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 I remember like Emily Spivak and Kristen coming to the room to educate me about it and to help, you know, allay my fears because like culturally that, you know, we, as a resident, we worked at three other, you know, three hospitals, the Intermountain mm -hmm. and the Veterans Hospital as well. And like, you know, everyone does it the same way. You know, you get your three days of azithro and you get your ceftriaxone and, 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 you know, typically you don't switch to oral antibiotics until they meet some stability criteria. You know, their vital signs are better or whatever. And so this was like a big change for me up front. And I, I, and I, I agree with you, I do feel pretty comfortable with it now, but it was a big change. And I still find myself needing to educate the residents on this pretty much every time I'm on service. Um, because if they don't use the pathway, they'll typically still order indefinite IV ceftriaxone and the three days of azithromycin. And so whether or not the, the pathway got initiated, it kind of determines what antibiotic trajectory we're on. And so it Lots of opportunities still to teach the residents here. Yeah, lots, lots of ongoing battles with this one. But, you know, overall, I think we're doing substantially better than we were five years ago. Kind of interesting. One of our residents, Gwen Dunn, um, teamed up with Valerie Vaughn, is, who is also one of our, our new faculty members here. Um, who specializes in in stewardship, and they actually looked at our 
our total length of antibiotic uh, duration with pneumonia compared to the rest of the country uh, with other academic medical centers. And we are doing substantially better as far as total length of, of therapy. So, you know, they attributed a lot to this project, which I, I agree with because, again, I think this was a major cultural change for everyone. Um, and I attribute that mostly to Dr. Spivak's amazing work with stewardship and just everything she's been able to accomplish with us. I think it's been amazing. Yeah, I'll second that, Claire. Uh, just one question, I guess, that I have. In, in phase two, you know, there's a significant cost savings. Um, and that seemed to be when you had the very intensive uh, mm -hmm. antibiotic stewardship kind of oversight and guidance. Was the cost of the antibiotic stewardship, you know, manpower incorporated in that, or was this considered a, a background program that was going on in the hospital regardless and just tapping into those resources for phase two? The latter. So unfortunately, uh, we did put that in our limitations is that we couldn't actually account for the cost of both Tristan and, um, and Dr. Spivak. Um, and kind of what that, like, what does that FTE time, you know, equate to as far as monetary? Um, so that was kind of one of our limitations. We used the video tool um, that Vivian Lee um, created years ago to really, you know, get the streamlined data um, out of that. But no, we weren't able to account for the, the manpower. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I was struck by the fact that despite the, uh, you know, intensive efforts on, throughout, you know, the phases that um, you still reported only 55% and 47% in phase two and three of the order set, um, you know, being used. Um, can you comment on that? Is that just people being stubborn and, and, and thinking yes. so best? <laughs> Which I never do, um, but, you know, maybe other people do. Yeah, it's really, it's incredibly challenging to get people to use the BPA. And 55% when you actually look at an order set being used via BPA in the, in the literature is actually really good. Um, so those numbers I'm pretty proud of. Um, what it doesn't account for um, is, is um, that the same order set is embedded into our admission orders. And so it's really, it was really hard to be able to extract that as well. Um, and to this day, I'm still kind of faced with, you know, well, this patient may have pneumonia, but I really think it's an aspiration pneumonia and that's totally different. And so we need to use unison. And I just need to be like, no, remember that all pneumonia is an aspiration. And so it's really okay to use these, you know, these set of antibiotics and then narrow down. Um, so I feel like there's a, there's just this constant battle with, um, with, with re-education. And then, um, you know, with the university, we have so many amazing value projects going on at once. <laughs> it's kind of hard to, you know, really streamline people. And so the BPA is a reminder, but when there's so many other things that we have to remember, um, sometimes it just gets, it gets overlooked. Yeah, you can definitely get some BPA fatigue too. Um, I, mean, uh, I have a couple other comments. Um, I, you know, it's interesting that you also see a cost reduction in phase one before you had really any intensive intervention. And I don't know if there was a, a reason we thought that occurred or if that was kind of a fluke. I don't know, to be honest. I saw that and the areas that we're seeing it is the reduction in pharmacy costs as well as laboratory costs, um, which are the same cost saving areas in phase two. And right. so I think people were starting to get excited um, and already changing some of their habits in phase one, even though we don't necessarily necessarily see that reflected um, in some of our, you know, length of stay or antibiotic changes. 
Um, I do wonder if that was, if that was kind of there, but it's so challenging. Cost data is such kind of a dubious area and there's so many different factors going on. Sometimes it's really hard to say that like this one little thing led to all these changes and we did, these are all normalized costs as well. And so they're all standardized because I'm sure, you know, there are fluctuations in cost um, throughout every year. And so these were all normalized to 2016 cost value um, when we looked at that. And then because we can't actually report what the true number is, these are all normalized um, values to that baseline phase in 2016. Yeah, I had one other comment I thought was interesting in this paper is the order set actually has a, the procalcitonin lab uh, pre-checked. And so one, yes. thing, one thing you found was that lab utilization for procalcitonin went, went up in phase two and three, not surprisingly, since people mm -hmm. were using the order set. And this study was done back in 2018 in, in the newer 2019 pneumonia guidelines. They kind of recommend against using the procalcitonin up front to determine whether to give antibiotics or not. So would you consider maybe modifying the, the, uh, the order set so that we're not checking procals on everyone? Or do you think there's still utility in checking procalcitonin on, on every pneumonia patient? I think it's I think it's still useful. There's so much kind of like back and forth on procalcitonin. Is it good? Is it helpful? Is it not? Um, and I've seen a lot of people try to extract and make kind of more complex um, decisions off of the procalcitonin, which isn't always a good thing. The the help I see with procalcitonin is that if it's virus season, right, and if a patient has kind of these like hazy opacities that aren't really kind of clear, they don't necessarily have a white count and you want to feel more reassured that this is like a viral process, the procalcitonin can point you in that direction and you can feel more confident stopping antibiotics. Um, and that's really what our goal was with using the procalcitonin. It wasn't necessarily to lead to duration of antibiotic therapy. So if you have a patient that clearly has a bacterial pneumonia and they're kind of an indeterminate procalcitonin, we still are recommending that you treat that patient for five days. Some of the previous studies were saying like, oh, you can use procalcitonin and track it to lead to an earlier discontinuation of uh, antibiotics. But those studies were actually even like, the antibiotic length of duration was something like 14 where they reduced it to 10 days. And, you know, our study is like, well, we're really saying five days total for the majority of patients mm -hmm. you know, either way. So we're not using it as a way to track antibiotic duration. It's really kind of that initiation. Do you feel confident that this is a bacterial pneumonia or you know, are these other factors going on and we can feel a little bit more confident, you know, not giving antibiotics if we think this is truly a viral process. I agree with that. I mean, I'm sure you've all seen that patient that comes in with the history of heart failure, COPD, mm -hmm. and is now short of breath and has a cough and has opacities on his chest x-ray. And you're not sure what to do if it's Lasix, steroids, antibiotics, you know, et cetera. Um, and so I do all three. I, you do all three. Perfect. Uh, that's good for cost. Um, but I think that's where procalcitonin really shines is in that, you know, um, multiple comorbidities and you're not sure what's going on. And if it's normal, I think it's pretty reassuring to not get the antibiotics. Stay tuned, right, Stacy? That's right. <laughs> Cool. Well, thanks. I think, yeah, maybe final, my final thoughts, if anyone cares, you can get, cut this out if you want. Um, you know, human, changing human behavior is very hard, right? Um, you know, that's sort of what the behavior research shows. So you guys did that, Claire. And, um, you know, yeah, we, again, all have, I think, changed our practice patterns based on this, this pathway that you've rolled out. So a great example of, of really good QI research um, and, you know, doing something that's really hard my demanding presence in the room, Austin, right? I just show up and take control. I am running this code. 
<laughs> we could talk about this, you know, forever, I think. But, but yeah, you know, I, I would be curious to hear sometime about, you know, why you, kind of, you feel like you kind of, you know, were successful with this. I think we're probably running out of time. But, you know, I think some strength, you know, just, yeah, st- strength of will was definitely involved. So, again, good work. <laughs> Thanks. I think Dr. Spivak was, was some of that special sauce, as Claire alluded to. Hey, strong women are powerful and it is hard to slow us down. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, last paper we're going to talk about today uh, is the solidarity trial. So last week we briefly mentioned that remdesivir was on the ropes again uh, because the WHO came out and said they recommended against using it because of lack of efficacy. That was based in part on their own study of remdesivir, the solidarity trial. We said we'd talk about it when it was published, and lo and behold, it was published the same day as our podcast last week. So ask and you shall receive, I guess. We we have have to do this. about it. (laughs) We set ourselves up. So I'll just briefly run through this. The Solidarity Trial is a huge open-label pragmatic adaptive randomized controlled trial run by the WHO. And adaptive means that they can drop unpromising drugs and add new drugs later. So they've already uh, tested and dropped hydroxychloroquine, lopinavir, and interferon uh, due to futility. And now they've added some fancy monoclonal antibodies. Um, This is not a placebo-controlled trial, so there is a risk of bias, but it is massive. And the main goal is to identify whether any of the drugs have a mortality benefit. Uh, So the primary outcome was in-hospital mortality. They don't actually follow up with patients after discharge, and I'm guessing that's because it would be very hard to do with 11,000 patients in 30 different countries. Uh, The secondary outcomes were initiation of mechanical ventilation and hospital duration. So really simple outcomes that are easy to extract when you're doing a gigantic study like this. They enrolled 11,330 patients from 405 hospitals in 30 countries. So this was all over the globe from Sweden to South Africa. Uh, Patients got either usual care, which was the control group. And since this was all over the globe, that that usual care could be extremely heterogeneous. Um, And then The other groups were remdesivir, hydroxychloroquine, lopinavir, or interferon. 2,750 patients got remdesivir, and this is more than twice as many patients as the ACT-1 trial, which had 1,062 patients, half of which got remdesivir. Um, Mortality rates were the same in remdesivir versus the control group, with a rate ratio of 0.95 and a a p-value of 0.5. There was also no difference in intubation rates. Um, now, we've talked about the ACT-1 trial uh, a couple times on the podcast. It did show a shorter time to recovery of 10 days versus 15 days with a rate ratio up for recovery of 1.29. And there was also a decrease in the median hospital length of stay of 12 days versus 17 days. But they don't actually say in the paper if that was statistically significant. Um, It's important to note, too, that the patients in the control group in ACT-1 or the placebo group tended to be sicker at the time of enrollment, uh, and that chance imbalance might account for some of the differences in the time to recovery. Um, But as far as the solidarity trial goes, there was no mortality benefit observed in any of the other groups as well. There was a trend toward uh, mortality benefit in the interferon group, but that was not statistically significant. But one of the interesting things that they found in this study was that the hospital length of stay was longer in all of the four treatment groups. And that was most likely due to the patients remaining in the hospital to get their trial treatment. And so, whereas the ACT-1 suggested that maybe there was a decreased length of stay um, because of remdesivir, in, in this study, it was actually one to three days longer uh, than the control group. Which is, which is interesting. Now, they were doing 10 days of remdesivir in this study. We now, you know, based on other studies, do five days. And so I feel like in our hospital, it doesn't really change or it doesn't increase the length of stay if a patient gets remdesivir because we just give it to them while they're here. And if they get five days, they get five days. If they get three days, we still discharge them when they're ready to go. So not a big deal, I think, from that point. But I think 
the big question I have after going through this paper is, do we keep giving people remdesivir? Do we really think that the benefits are worth the very high costs? And, you know, it has been associated with acute liver injury and acute kidney injury. Do we think it's worth it to keep giving it if there's no mortality benefit and not a definite benefit in decreasing hospital length of stay? I don't know. Thanks, Austin. <laughs> they basically just, you know, say Act 1 sucks, um, which, you know, I'm sure Act 1 is going to disagree with, right? Um, but I do think, you know, you highlighted the main points is that, you know, Act 1 did have more patients with less severe disease in the remdesivir group. So that's a potential, you know, um, bias and that, you know, the subgroup analyses need to be uh, taken with a large grain of salt. And so the whole mortality, you know, benefit that was proposed in Act 1, I think we can cl pretty clearly say now is, is you know, debunked. Um, but, you know, I, I really don't know. I mean, you know, the whole question of equipoise and like what's, you know, I think if you ask 10 different people, you're going to get 10 different answers. And it's a really murky, a really murky area. I, I think the, you know, the the adverse effects of remdesivir are still pretty minimal for what it's worth. I mean, we are, you know, monitoring LFTs um, anecdotally, which is worth nothing. Um, but, you know, we haven't, I haven't seen any major adverse events with remdesivir. I've given a lot of remdesivir. <laughs> um, so, you know, really at the end of the day, I don't think we quite know. And, and I think ongoing study is necessary. And I thought that, the, they ended their their paper basically with uh, quote the main need is for better treatments end quote <laughs> and um, that's still where we are. It's also weird to me why some stuff is is so definitively debunked and out, and other stuff sort of sticks around for so long. You know, is why why can we just say? you know, uh, lapinavir is, is out and be done with it. Like, great, we've moved on, you know, we're done. Um, and, and still remdesivir and, and other things, it seems like we're getting negative studies, even though we have a positive signal from before, but like, what's going on here? What's, what's the conspiracy behind all of this? Well, I think, I think we want something to work. We're emotionally invested in finding something that works. A lot of people have worked on remdesivir, including at our institution, right? We've had people working their butts off to get patients remdesivir, you know, getting paged at four in the morning because a patient needs, you know, approval to get remdesivir. And we have these awesome infectious disease doctors who are on call 24-7 to make that happen, right? Like, we want remdesivir to work. I don't know. What, what do you, Stacey or Claire, what do you guys think? Are you going to keep prescribing it? So, I mean, you know, I, I still think we're, even though we're, we're almost a year into the pandemic, I think there's still a lot to learn. And I think, you know, the way that these drugs work, you know, these four drugs that we're talking about are kind of antiviral type drugs. And so, you know, if you think of the natural history of a COVID infection, they get exposed to the virus, they get rapid virus replication, you get, you know, cytotoxic injury from the virus itself. And then as your viral loads go down, you see this cytokine storm and surge and inflammation and ARDS. And so I guess my question with this study is, you know, at what point in time of the patient's illness were these drugs administered? You know, there, I think the remdesivir data suggests that early administration of remdesivir has better outcomes. Later, you know, once you're already intubated and on the ventilator, it's not going to help very much. Where at that point in your disease state, is it? you know, immunomodulatory drugs or steroids or something that's going to help more in the late stages. And so, you know, those studies are ongoing. I think we have ACT4 going right now, which is a combination of remdesivir plus, you know, dexamethasone or immunomodulator. And I'd be curious to see if combination therapy to hit the early phase and the late phase of the disease will alter its course more, you know. And so even though this is a huge, you know, trial in multiple different countries and and, you know, it shows no, no mortality signal, you know, maybe remdesivir alone isn't going to change mortality. Maybe it has to be combined with some other anti-inflammatory agent down the road in their disease course. 
I agree with Stacy. Um, when I've talked to kind of our antimicrobial team who are clearly more up to date on this than I am, you know, the IDSA is still um, is still advocating for early use of remdesivir, just like Stacy said, kind of earlier in the course when it's more of that viral storm, viral kind of cytokine storm, and less of when it's really gone into that purely inflammatory phase where you're seeing more of that lung damage. And so I haven't seen necessarily any harm, you know, with it. Um, and there is kind of this theoretical benefit that I think, you know, because we are really drowning <laughs> with this pandemic, I, I think it's worthwhile to at least try, you know, um, and that's where I am. You know, you can say that I'm in Gilead's pocket or whatever, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I still feel like it's at least worthwhile to, to try you. something. <laughs> you know, I'll go on. I'll go on record. Like I just finished service yesterday. I'm. I mean, I'm still giving it. You know, I think um, we trust our, or I trust our local people. Um, maybe too much, but you know, I think um, we are. I mean, you know, we're doing our best to evaluate the the data ourselves, and I think continuing to question remdesivir is reasonable with the caveat that we still don't have anything else, honestly. I mean, we're still, you know, on the Remdex combo. We're trying to enroll people in trials. And, um, you know, I want to feel like I'm doing something and, and I don't believe that it does a lot of harm. And I trust our local people who are saying continue to give it for now or, or at least, you know, still slightly recommending give it. And so um, as of yesterday, I was still giving it to people that, yeah, were, um, you know, earlier in their disease and, and on oxygen. All right. Well, I think that was a very nice discussion. Thank you, guys. Um, we've been gabbing for a long time, so I, I think it's time to wrap up. Uh, thanks, Stacy and Claire, for joining us today. It was awesome to have you guys uh, helping make Dr. Rupp and me look smarter than we are. So uh, that, that's all we have today. Uh, thanks for tuning in, and we will be back next week.